Hello and welcome to Jaffa Gex Approves Presents Tiltarice's 12 Months of Christmas. I'm going to begin this one slightly differently from any of the others. I mean, I know there's another eight I haven't recorded so far, but I think this is going to be the only one that starts with a bouncy, music hole-based, whimsical pop song about a cinematic aesthetic. Well, I won't play the whole thing, but I'll make sure that I put a YouTube link so you can listen to the whole song pretty much wherever this uh, edition of the show goes out. But uh, that was Dickens Van Dyke by Mr. Neptune J. Max, and here he is himself. Mr. Neptune J. Max, hello. Hello. Good evening or morning or wherever this is being broadcast. Yes, I like to talk about A Christmas Carol out of season, but this time it's a little different because we're actually going to talk about an entire aesthetic? Yes, I guess it would be. You identified or a friend identified? Uh, Mutually identified while on a trip to England, yes. Now, I've met you before in England. One of your party was taking pictures of what, to me, were very ordinary houses. And I said, why are you taking pictures of those houses? And he said, well, when were they built? I said, about 1870. That's why. Right, because, I mean, here in Los Angeles, you know, if it's 30, 40 years old, it's an antique. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. You know. We don't have history here. I should have taken you down one of the big roads because there there's a building I used to pass every time I uh, walked to work that I think is from about 1660 or something. Oh, right. And then, of course, there's the cathedral and bits of that go back a very long time. Oh, absolutely, of course. So, yeah, actually, so Hollywood grabbing big chunks of history and and trying to own them. Is that maybe part of it? There is certainly that uh, period piece in putting... uh, I don't know that that's unique to Hollywood. I mean, even Shakespeare was doing that sort of thing, you know, trying to bring it into contemporary times or whatnot, or putting a particular spin on it that uh, reflected the era that uh, it was being produced. There's always been nostalgia, in other words. Uh, you see that in paintings and so forth uh, uh, as well. Uh, El Greco, you know, doing oh, okay. homages and so forth to uh, times past. And, uh, but this sensibility, there's a particular thing about the Victorian and Edwardian era in particular that somehow found cult status of some sort or a reimagined version of it uh, in the 60s. It's worth mentioning, I think all my listeners know that I live in Disneyland, and I assume you visited Uh, I've had uh, an annual passport to Disneyland since 1989. Wow. I I go there all the time. I know everything about Disneyland. My favorite part of Disneyland, and it's the least thrilling, is Main Street, USA. Yeah. And that's the gay 90s. That was clearly something that was... 
looming large in Walt Disney's mind, but I think it was def- it was in the collective consciousness. I'm just thinking also of the thing of being nostalgic for times that were pretty horrible. Just occasionally, the way people talk about the Blitz spirit. Right. Yes, that was it was very good that we stuck together and did as the government told us, but there was a documentary about Dad's Army, and right at the end, I think they had Wendy Richard who said, yeah, you know, it was a wonderful time, we'd all like to go back then, and then it got to Clive Dunn, he said, I had a lousy war. <laughs> I wouldn't go back. It was a prisoner of war. It was terrible. So, I mean, like the gay 90s is also the Gilded Age. Yes. I mean, it was a cusp of sorts of optimism. You know, electricity had really just come in, and, and there was just an incredible boom of inventions that we consider to be necessities at this point. I mean, life was changing so rapidly in the arts and music and so forth. I mean, it just seemed like the future was just coming at these people every year, you know, with just incredible leaps. And yet one rule I keep coming up again and again uh, in terms of filmmaking is make steampunk and starve. (laughs) That part has never caught on. (laughs) True. That's hilarious. So, I mean, Dickens died in 1870, so he's not even around for most of this, but it's just one of those beautiful little phrases that unlocks everything. So, I mean, I'm trying to think of this aesthetic. The earliest I can think is Mary Poppins, but my brain lets me down sometimes. I would like to say that it starts with Main Street, Disneyland, 1955. Right, yes. Uh, And, of course, Mary Poppins is a Disney production. And I think Mary Poppins is is an extension of that Main Street sensibility. Walt Disney was absolutely trying to inject that film with uh, that same sensibility that was not in the book. And then you have Around the World in 80 Days, which would be the next year after Disneyland opened. And then you just get the floodgates. Right, so, but let's open up Scrooge. So, Scrooge, I'm almost a bit surprised it exists. Because the specters at this particular feast would be Dr. Doolittle and Hello Dolly. Well, Scrooge is really Oliver Part 2, isn't it? I mean, it's really... Yes, yeah. <laughs> even used some of the same sets as a Shepperton, I think. Oliver, they just had these sets and they thought, well, what else can Dickens do for us? <laughs> Chuzzlewit! <no>. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And frankly, Scrooge is ripe for um, being a musical, probably more so than Oliver Twist. You know, it has the fantasy element. The thing I say again and again as we look at different versions is that the story is so full of, almost like, I don't know, you can almost imagine this little buttons, little clickers. There are things you can emphasize. Let's leave that one up. Click. That that one goes down. We don't deal with that bit. It's so episodic. Mm. You can omit bits. You could probably make two versions of A Christmas Carol that are maybe 60% the same story and would both be valid versions of A Christmas Carol. Absolutely. And that's because more even for Dickens, it deals with such strong archetypes that interact in a way that's very much a moral fable that really can, can go anywhere with it, really. I'm sorry, I just had a mildly cynical thought as well. It's a bad person, and you can just sit and enjoy and go, I'm not that bad. <laughs> so it's a moral fable that lets the viewer off the hook if they want. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, everybody sort of uh, looks at the films, and of course there have been many, many films. Everybody says, oh, it's the Alistair Sim version, is the definitive film. But there are things in that 
where they miss, I think, a subtle point of Dickens' original work, that this version, Scrooge, actually deals with better. Do tell! (laughs) I think it's the greed and miser miserly aspect of the actual the money let me roll back just for a second you go back to victorian times and you have victorian poverty or the threat of poverty and it is no joke back then the fear of poverty is a very real thing for people people could lose everything overnight you know and just be in the worst of circumstances there were no safety nets and things like that we have now today so there probably was at that time a lot of people who were on the scale of being Scrooge with their money, with hoarding it, saving it, making sure they had enough money at the expense of, you know, whether they're spending it or not, somebody was in need, but, you know, I might be in need at some point, and I need to hoard as much as I can. So you're dealing with sort of a a real figure, a relatable figure almost, back uh, when Christmas Carol came out. Much later, when you're talking about the film versions, where the sensibility of, well, money isn't everything. There's also happiness. And there's these safety nets of, of whatever. And, oh, well, you can be happy and poor. and everything. You know, a lot of people did not yes. think about that in Victorian times. You think, well, if I'm poor, I'm not happy. I'll tell you that right now. And so, yeah, it was that idea. If we make poverty as unpleasant as possible, nobody will get poor. They'll avoid it. <laughs> right. And it's interesting that, that as uh, later versions come up with the Scrooge retelling, there's this notion of, well, we have to kind of know how Scrooge was made, his origin story. You know, wh- where does that come from? That personality didn't, from, didn't come from nothing. You know, where, how does that come about? And you have things like the Alistair Sims version, which is trying to sort of explain with all this stuff about the business things. And- yes, my issue with that version is that it's really badly unbalanced and it spends so much time, you know, messing around with Jack Warner. It seems to be fascinated by boardroom drama. Yeah, I think it's a, there's this whole avenue of trying to portray it as a sort of a, a almost like an addiction. Like he's, you know, the, it starts out as a simple thing and then becomes more you know, the ambition and the power and the, all this sort of thing, and it becomes a, an addiction that an end into itself, and that he becomes consumed by that at the expense of all everything else. That's not really in the story. The money aspect is. Just a physical manifestation of his rejection of society, of, of humanity, should I say. Because everybody's rejected him. His father's rejected him and treats him poorly. His mother died in, in his childbirth and so on. Um, I think that dying in childbirth is implied, isn't it? Isn't it slightly? Yes, because he doesn't, he doesn't have, he, his father doesn't want him home for the holidays, Christmas holidays, and he has no mother. So he's alone. When the sister, and the father, Blames him in the story, anyways, and the father sort of blames him for the mother's death, uh, as I recall. And the sister promises to take care of him, and but she dies young, sort of leaving him. And then his fiance there's, leaves him. Yes, th- th- there's a really intriguing little thing that's just left hanging in that the whole Scrooge's relationship with his father, and that Fang comes home and Scrooge's father has undergone some sort of transformation. His father's so much kinder than he was. And that she asked him if Ebenezer could come home, and he said yes. Uh, it's interesting that that's just left there. The George C. Scott version kind of squishes that by showing us Silas Scrooge, who appears in no other version, and saying, you know, you can stay for three days, and then I've got you apprenticed. Uh, so they, they still have the father 
I mean, you, can, you know, if, if his father is responsible for the apprenticeship, he gets him, him apprentice with Fezziwig, which is a sweet gig. As, sorry, I was, I was, I was trying to uh, think and read the Wikipedia entry on Thomas Malthus at the same time. I just wanted to, you know, like Scrooge is Scrooge Malthusian. <laughs> <laughs> well, sort and, and he sort of is, and I have to say, just to continue, that um, he feels rejected by humanity, and his, his fiance rejects him, and so forth, and, and all that. And uh, and then, of course, uh, when we see him, his his only friend, if you want to call him Marley, has died seven years back. And uh, you see things like uh, the two blokes that come to uh, ask for charity. And um, it's funny, if it was all about the money, you didn't think they would be haggling or talk about the money, how much he would donate. It's not really about the money as much as it is about he doesn't want to be shaken down by these people. He's not faulted for making lots of money. That's not the problem. The problem is that he doesn't want to give or relinquish any of the money because then you have to actually interact with people. You actually, there has to be human interaction with that. He doesn't want. It's he's almost. It's not even as much the the, the money as these two blokes. He has to interact with them and he has to hear about these charities and these poor children and all this sort of stuff. He doesn't want to hear about that. He doesn't want to know about the rest of the man. He doesn't want to be responsible for any of that because then he has to interact with them. And that's why when the Ghost of Christmas present comes, shows up with uh, the two children, uh, I think it's ignorance and want, oh. and he says to be the most careful of ignorance. And that's what Scrooge is doing. He's willfully ignorant to the rest of humanity. He's trying to pretend that the rest of humanity doesn't exist. And so I think in Scrooge, the film, when that it's very good that... They, they target that with the song, um, I Hate People, uh, which so it's more about that than it is about the money, which I think is more closely related to Dickens story. Yeah, it's, it's you see, I only have one real problem with this film, and that is Albert Finney's entire performance. It feels like a comedy performance that's not funny. You should be able to overact Dickens if you can overact any author. But I just can't interface with him. I can't see him as a as a being he he's acting i can see him acting it's, it is one of the i i don't know if this has anything to do with it, but of course he was only what was he 35 33, when he, 33 yeah. you know whereas most of the versions you see the scrooge is actually an older person and i'm not entirely going to blame him for that because clearly he was given what the director wanted i assume unless he was going completely brando but there's the, there is that scene later on where his fiance breaks up with him, and there's just the sort of as a kind of blank machismo about him when he's you know because he's not made up to be old. I thought there he is. He doesn't have to put on the voice, make him up to be old, but he doesn't have to sound like he's chewing a cabbage leaf at the same time, and just have him as the hard man. Yeah, he did. Uh, I, I will say he did bring a bit of physicality to the idea of him being sort of hunched over his work all day, mm. you know, and that sort of, and, and it kind of withers and, and that he's, he doesn't speak to people so much and he's got, you know. But this went through I mean, I think Richard Harris was in the frame and then had to drop out. It's the possibility of Rex Harrison. Yes, I remember they said something about Rex Harrison, which then it would be Harrison Van Dyke for the because uh, <laughs> he would have had three films then. Yes, I can't see Rex Harrison as Scrooge. No, no, I could. Um, well, I, I can't uh, see Rex Harrison as Doctor Doolittle. He was he was abysmal in that. I thought. 
He was so unlikable. <laughs> so, he gives them the same performance, doesn't he, in everything? Pr- pretty much, yeah. Uh, you can take him out of the agony and the ecstasy and plop him in My Fair Lady. and Pretty much Professor Higgins and everything. And, uh, but, uh, except uh, Anna and the King of Siam. Which... Oh, yeah. The thing is, is that I can imagine Richard Harris making the same or being encouraged to make the same mistake in his performance as well. I think we can agree it should have been Alan Bates. Yes, or not famous enough for the screen, but uh, Harry H. Corbett would have. Because I'm thinking also, you're thinking like of Finney being one of the modern guys. Ten years earlier, he's one to watch. He's a new talent. So I'm thinking, yeah, it's interesting getting an actor from the kitchen sink school. Yeah, maybe he deserved to play Scrooge, but in a completely different film. It's sort of like circa 67, still in black and white. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very grim. But uh, it's sort of a, yeah, the French New Wave. Hey, British New Wave, we did have our own New Wave. In fact, in some ways, maybe the last British New Wave film is Hard Day's Night. While we're talking, I have the film on my screen. And can I just mention Anton Rogers? Anton Rogers was fantastic. I mean, he's a real scene stealer. It's just so nice that there's like a widescreen, color, high definition film with lots of Anton Rogers. He's a seriously underrated actor. I mean, 1970, the 60s, it's not unusual for him to be playing slimy characters. It was in an episode of a police drama called Gideon's Way, which involved a bunch of young people who committed crimes um, kind of to prove their, I don't know, sort of a nihilistic thing. They called them giggles, so that, you know, they terrorized people. And and I'd been, uh, before that, he'd been uh, a criminal who was taunting Megre and you're constantly sort of hanging around saying, you, you haven't got me yet, you haven't got me yet. Uh, and of course, there was, there was a really interesting film called Rotten to the Core that I think was originally meant for Peter Sellers. That's about a criminal, and that ended up being uh, Anton Rogers' starring role. You were saying? You know, I, I was sure, who's Megre in the... Oh, the Rupert Davis TV series, which has just recently come out on Blu-ray. So Really? They're tele-recordings. It's not HD, but, but uh, it gives you as much signal as you need. You've said the thing that you thought ruined Scrooge. I think the single thing that ruined Scrooge was the song I Like Life. That's funny you should say that. I was, because uh, w- I watched it earlier today to keep it fresh in my mind, and I thought it was kind of a, you know, kind of, just kind of selfish. I enjoy drinking and all the rest, and it just seemed to be all about, as Scrooge himself says to Cratchit, all you think about is pleasure. Right, so you thought it pushed beyond appreciation into... Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously it comes from the uh, Kenneth Moore. Ah, uh, ha, 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 well. Uh, quick before I mention Kenneth Moore, um, I was interested in addition subtractions. This is one of the only versions to have a white hearse go past Scrooge in his own house. Goes in the wrong direction per the story, but and uh, it's, it's Roy Evans who is in things. This Film scores very high for that guyishness quality my wife and I have identified. Hey, it's that guy. Fred's party later on. I mean, that's like there's more stars than there are in heaven if you're interested in British character actors. Uh, Gordon Jackson. Oh, yes. Which I was like, he's, he's, you, you blink and he's gone. It's like, what was that all about? So, um, I like life. Kenneth Moore. There are two Kenneth Moores. There's the Kenneth Moore from the movies 
who is rather hectoring. If you ever read the book Shepherd and Babylon by Matthew Sweet, which I highly recommend, he doesn't like Kenneth Moore. He says that he's not quite school bully thing. He's the kind of guy who'd save you from the bullies, but then would expect you to shine his shoes for a few weeks afterwards. Television Kenneth Moore is haunted and conflicted. Englishman's Castle, uh, alternate history miniseries, and the Foresight Saga, and even his um, what idiot thought he could play Father Brown, and why were they right? <laughs> so yeah, the absolutely this little uh, uh, who else is? No, in we, we've skipped over Christmas Past. Roy Kinnear's in there. Oh yes, with um, Derek Francis, who's also in the George C. Scott version. You were saying? Well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll allow you to. Um, vent your spleen on I Like Life. Just from a, a composition standpoint, it is trying way too hard. That's <laughs> really what what it comes down to. I mean, it's clearly a song that did not spring from inspiration. It was engineered at every turn to be, you know, just hit these certain things. And in doing so, it just, it just made itself into sounds like a song written by a committee. It doesn't really... Yes, as a lesson for Scrooge, it's kind of a dead end. Yeah, and they and they put way too much screen time in it. It's 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 important song. It comes up twice, like Thank You Very Much does. Thank You Very Much is a brilliant song, and that whole sequence really works. It's very unusual. Uh, I think that sequence, the Thank You Very Much sequence with the, uh, the Tom Jenkins character and all that, is really the brilliance uh, of that film. They handled that part of the story like no one else did, because uh, they always do the thing with the uh, people robbing him and uh, the grave robbing. There's one bit that's often missed out, which is there's a couple. I don't know if that's when he asks, "Can I see some tenderness?" Or he asks to see a, some different aspect of a reaction, and there's that couple where the guy comes home and says he's dead, and it's like, "Well, does that put it? It doesn't matter. It put it. It gives us time. He's dead." And they're happy. Thank you very much seems to take that as the basis for the entire yet-to-come sequence. And, you know, why not? In the story and in the versions and so forth, uh, there is this dead person, and Scrooge doesn't know who it is and sort of asks the apparition, who is this man? And it's like, well, clearly it's you. I mean, really. But the way that it's handled in the film, Scrooge, where he's blocked... The hearse is blocked. He doesn't see, you know, all these sorts of things. And his back is turned when he's ripping, when Jenkins is ripping up the ledger and all that. You know, it's it's very clever, I thought, to extend. He doesn't know who it is. He's, what have I done that's so great? I thought it was a very, very clever way of uh, protracting that uh, and making it seem reasonable. What do you think of Alec Guinness in the film? Alec Guinness, uh, well, uh, it's interesting. He kind of used the same voice that he used as Fagin in the Oliver Twist <laughs> film he did. I genuinely enjoyed his first appearance, not the second yes. one. He <laughs> really let the side down on the second one, didn't he? He feels kind of lost. And then they cut out his big number, and, and he ended up getting a double hernia for his trouble. Oh, was that from The Wires? Yes, yeah. So I think we're not getting what we could have got out of Alec Guinness. I think the harness is bothering him. Wait, wait, hang on a minute. They've got Alec Guinness. Why do they need Albert Finney? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. He was probably apart from the fact that I uh, probably can't sing. I'll tell you right there that what probably went down is that the director needed somebody young, 
so that he could play the young Scrooge without having to get another actor to do it. Because it's easier to make somebody up to look old, not so easy to make an old person look young. That's probably what happened there. But uh, Alec Guinness, what really stuck with me from the first time I saw it, even when I was a child, was the incredible physicality of his entrance in the first scene, when he enters into the room, and then his exit when he leaves at the end of that sequence. He brings with him this absolutely convincing physicality of having carrying those chains. I think it's beautiful to watch. It's interesting that he seems to be trying to be his own special effects. In a sense, yes. Yeah, he's trying to act like he's underwater. It almost seemed like there's some sort of special effects, especially when he's when he's retreating, he's backing up, and it looks like, oh, is there some sort of special effects? No, he's just doing that himself. But there's that strange bit where he sits down and he puts his hands on his knees and his hands sort of just keep floating. Yeah, but then that all that's out the window when he does the uh, the Hades bit. But I think, uh, uh, going back to what you were saying about uh, um, Albert Finney, not perhaps being the best choice uh, for this, that, that school of acting, because Christmas Carol is borderline panto material, and then you put a, a musical on top of that. Doesn't <clears throat> really seem for that school of acting, does it? <laughs> I find Christmas Past oddly unmemorable as a, as a ghost. Yeah, well, and now somebody who didn't, uh, who who did that? That was one of the Edith Evans. She'd worked with uh, Albert Finney before because they did, they did uh, Tom Jones. She was in that. But she's just, I don't know. She's just there and she says the lines. You almost wonder if you've got a director who's too scared to direct a grand dam. But, th- th- well, but I mean, there's the whole conception of her. She's just there in a nice dress. The book describes Christmas past as sort of looking like a boy, but also an old man and sort of fading in and out. And I don't know. I, I, I guess maybe you're just looking for a contrast. It reminds me, it's one of those performances that reminds me of those, uh, some of these star studded versions of Alice in Wonderland where they stick some, you know what I mean? And it just, you know, they phone it in and it's just, okay, right. That's, you know. <laughs> Now, this is the only version of Scrooge that really focuses on his sweet archery skills. <laughs> That's a funny thing, all that sequence. Again, going back to, I think the film does a good job of not dealing with the origin story. Not trying to justify it. Not trying to say, this is where he came from and this is what he's all about and here's the sympathy and all this stuff. Just sort of saying, there are people that are like this. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that sequence. You'll notice that... The young Scrooge doesn't say a single word until the scene when he's being dumped. So you don't get to know, what, oh, what was Scrooge like before? You just have to go with, this is who he is. There are shifts, such large shifts in Scrooge's character. It's got to be a, a real trial for certain actors, and some of them can't stick the transformation. Often it's a different actor for the past. This time they've not gone with that. Yes, you know, you have this lovely... Her fiance and so forth. And there's that question of, well... She gets more time, but she doesn't seem to get more character. I mean, she gets a musical number. Yes. Uh, what she doesn't get, which is kind of a, a bit of an omission that you see in the other version, you don't get to see her life after. Yes. A lot of versions miss that bit out. Which I think is kind of important, because then Scrooge is looking at the life he could have had. And 
I kind of miss that. You know, I, I don't think it's quite good enough. And again, she's not quite well off. They're sort of living comfortably, but they have too many children to be rich. I'm trying to think of versions of Christmas Present that actually go all the way being jolly and hail fellow well met. It seems to be something that a lot of versions fall short on. Yeah, I think they're trying to find a contrast to Ghost of Christmas Present. I mean, I like that sort of you weird little man, but at some point, I, I, well, th that's the thing. He's he's immediately picking on Scrooge. We don't get that sense of you know all the sausages hanging from the ceiling, whatever Dickens describes. And I'm thinking, like, you've seen the George C. Scott version, yes? It's been a while, but yes. Which, as we say, has the callan of Christmas present that Edward Woodward, he actually does some jolly stuff, but his loathing for Scrooge uh, is never far from the surface. I, that's just, I think that's just part of every Edward Woodward, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> uh, and there was the... Patrick Stewart version, 1999, which seems to try and get as much of the story as possible. But even then, he's he seen the bits that stick in my mind of Christmas Present are the bits where he's being kind of miserable. Brian Blessed's never played that part on screen. You know, that's what I was thinking. That I mean, Brian Blessed is natural for that part. I have issues with Fred's party. One, everybody in that thing is famous. <laughs> James Villiers, James Carsons, Hildebrand from Citizen Smith, Kenneth Waller from Bread, and he's also one of the uh, scientists in Titty Titty Bang Bang. Oh, right. And he was uh, old Mr. Grayson, Are You Being Served? There's just faces everywhere in that thing. Uh, but you had a problem with it. The game. They keep changing what game they play at the party. You mean the with the minister's cat? But... Yeah, for a start. I, I find that really stressful. <laughs> it's one of those kind of games that I can't enjoy even as a spectator. Yeah. <laughs> I just get that vicarious stress of not being able to think of a word. Right. Well, they do a... Uh, uh, it is interesting that they even do that and he and, and Scrooge sort of participates and all that sort of stuff because it's done in the book where he participates in the games. I think... But the game... Blind Man's Bluff. But the game is, is questions or yes and no. It's... And it has that thing where you get that it's your Uncle Scrooge. Mm. Which, in the Muppet version, just kills him. You can just see the joy go out of him. George C. Scott version, it's similes, but they do get like a little dig in at Scrooge. But he just kind of, you know, ah, yeah, typical. Just seems to be... Dickens has got, it, has, has got your back there. You don't need to put an original spin. Yeah, point taken. Sure. I mentioned David Collins as Bob Cratchit. Yes, uh, we enjoy. I think he does a really good job. He kind of looks poor, but he's not pathetic. Yeah, he, well, he doesn't have to try too hard. I mean, David Collins, he really has, <laughs> he's just naturally sympathetic or, or pitiable or something. I don't know. Why seem to associate him more with slightly dodgy characters? He could slip into villainy quite easily. Sometimes Cratchit could just come across as a colossal wimp. This Cratchit doesn't. He's kind of uh, enjoying himself, but with a you know, little bit of flop sweat. That little bit of desperation, because of course yeah, he's in that horrible, horrible world. Yeah, and it does help, because that is part of the story that he, with toasting Scrooge and all that, it's hard 
to see why he thanks Scrooge and all that. This performance, you kind of see that even though you know he takes the slings and arrows, and like you said, he's not he's not pitiably suffering. He just takes it on the chin. And... I'm trying to think though. Christmas Present doesn't have a big production number. The past does, as December the twenty fifth, which, which is... is another good song. I really like that song. And of course, Scrooge works for the amazing Mister Blondin. Yes, or Smith. That's a big number, but Present doesn't. I don't know. I always get the feeling Present is the most shortchanged in most versions. Yeah, or Present had the uh, the Tiny Tim song, didn't it, or something? Yes, but it's like Fred's Cratchit's done. Whereas they're walking around the streets of London Christmas morning. There's a bit I can understand why it gets dropped, but I would like it to appear more, which which he just takes Scrooge across the country, seeing how Christmas is celebrated, and we don't know how long that is, because he definitely ends up at a Twelfth Night party. I will say this again and again, it is just possible that from Scrooge's point of view, he's been away for at least two weeks. It's described in the book, you know, we, we see... In all the film versions, it's always, you know, the first ghost comes at one, and second ghost at two, and, you know, and it's all overnight, it's Christmas Eve. But mm. in the book, it's different nights. Yes, yeah. Which is why uh, it's always sort of odd on those versions when he throws open the windows and asks the boy, what day is it today? And like, but yes. because in the in the book, it's been several days, as far as he knows, and it's mm. like, oh, it's still Christmas, I haven't missed it. Whereas yes. if it was just overnight, it's like, well, of course it's still Christmas. It's the same night. Let's um go to hell. That bit, the big addition, the bit that's in no other version of this story. Uh, it what? Oh, was it not in the uh, Mister Magoo's Christmas Carol? What he went to hell? I'm joking. Oh right, okay. I'm. <laughs> been a while since I watched that. Because Mr. Magoo has the ghosts in a different order, so I was thinking there might be all other kinds of... You're right, you're right. But I, I wanted to point that one up because I saw something where saying oh, this is the, that Scrooge is the, notable because it's uh, the first musical version of The Christmas Carol and the first version in color. And I said, wait a minute, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol predates it by several years, and that's color and a musical. And there was a TV production, I think it was for The Alcoa Hour, uh, the Stingiest Man in Town, that was a musical version of A Christmas Carol with Basil Rathbone as Scrooge. That was in colour, but only a black and white kinescope exists. Wow. Not everything on the internet is correct. I mean, it's a bold move, but Jacob Marley seems to be enjoying himself, which is the exact opposite of what Jacob Marley should be. This is, this is true. And Mr. Guinness seems to have just completely abandoned... <laughs> I mean, it almost seemed like an afterthought. Was it an afterthought to do this or to invite him back to do it? I don't understand the circumstances. It seems unlike Alec Guinness. Yeah, the thing is, is if Scrooge is in hell, then he's failed. He just wanted to get the message through to Scrooge to change so that he'd have a chance. And now he's failed in that, but he just seems cheerful. Yeah, which is interesting because, interestingly, in the book, uh, Marley is not as bad as Scrooge. Mm. He has a sort of a... It isn't just after he's died. I think it was like a deathbed... That's in the Alice Sim film. Oh, is that in the film? That's not. don't in... think it's in the story, yeah. Well, I do know that people that come by for the charity, they came by looking for Marley because he'd given them money before. 
which obviously Scrooge never did. And of course, Scrooge has had an extra seven years of badness, which has contributed to his chain. And interestingly, I don't know what the significance is, but uh, Tiny Tim is seven years old. Oh, right. I don't think I can read anything into that. I don't think so either, but it's I'm not sure why there's a point. I don't know how you feel about the Reformation scene. To me, Scrooge acts like an idiot. Yeah, I um, was a bit surprised by on this recent watching because the versions that I had seen uh, had cut it out uh, on television and so forth. Oh, we're talking about the hell bit. Oh, okay, you're talking about... Oh, you're talking about... Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, when he's reformed, he just buys everything in London. Yes. Uh, causing his own supply chain issues, no doubt. <laughs> And it doesn't seem that it's like, well, that's not the lesson. It should be something a little more profound. Yeah, I can imagine, like, if you wanted to write an extension of A Christmas Carol about what happens to Scrooge for the Christmases, is that he sets up something akin to a building and loan, or, you know, he brings people in and says, you owe me this much now. What? How much do you owe other people? Let's offer financial services. Still rich, but principled. Whereas in this, everybody gets their debts written off, which I'm ambivalent about that. On the one hand, he has probably screwed people really badly so that they have actually paid their debts many times over. But it still just seems a, <laughs> look, I'm a, a joyful ninny. Yeah, I mean, he may have uh, regret about that, you know. And waste of Jeffrey Bailden in the toy shop. I don't know, did he even say more than five words in that scene? I think he's the one who asks the question of Scrooge that gets maybe gets Scrooge to say, I like life. He definitely questions Scrooge's behavior. Yeah, uh, and then we're back to uh, I like life uh, on that. That whole sequence just is just... <laughs> could work with a better song. I would go with it, but it just... Oh, yeah, because he runs around dressed as Father Christmas. So we have the big I like life production number. And, I mean, what I think you would naturally end on is you zoom over all the dancing people and you close in on Scrooge who's laughing and joyful and then you freeze frame and then you put the end but they don't, they have a bit where he's just walking home and then talks to the door knocker, oh I forgot to mention that best ever haunted door knocker that's just perfect the way they do that, such a slow fade in and out, it's like you've got the big number and then he's walking home and it's like wait, is, is there more Phil? And, and there isn't. He's just... I suppose that is the film trying to say, here is what the film's about, because he says, I'm going to spend Christmas with my family. So they've kind of gone out on, family is the most important thing. I suppose so. I always felt, at the end of the dance sequence there, when he's walking the street on his own, that sequence there seems a little, I don't know, a little pathetic. He seems... He's like, there he is alone, you know, again. Yes. It's a weird, ragged little ending to something that has previously shown it knows exactly how to handle big production numbers. I did notice uh, uh, it was interesting that I thought uh, in the dance sequence just before that, it's all the people that are lower class, poor people. You know, Scrooge is sort of the top dog of that society. And then they they do the dancing and singing and thank you very much and they have this grand old time and they get to the church. And there's all these very upper crust people finely dressed coming out of the church, being very somber and serious on Christmas Day. And then they're all dancing around, all the local. Uh, you know, I thought it was an interesting, uh, you know, drawing in 
the upper crust into the spirit. I don't know if that was <laughs> if you noticed that. I didn't. I'm not as good at reading films as you are. <laughs> no, not that. There's a version from I think it's about 2004 with Kelsey Grammer that I think tries to be a grand old Dickens Van Dyke big production numbers, um, sort of not moral vacuity, but it doesn't have the guts of the story. But that's the you know that's the whole thing. It's just like it's a big show busy version. Uh, so it's worth looking at as an apparent attempt to revive a style. And also, it's interesting to see 20, 30 years before Scrooge in the story that he flashes back sort of 20, 30 years, that everybody still dressed like it was the 1840s, even in the 1820s. Right. Uh, it's interesting, uh, speaking of uh, time periods, it's mostly, they do sort of place it in the... Uh... It's set in 1860. The the story I believe the original story is yeah eighteen the original story is eighteen forty three I think it was published yeah so that's Regency era era isn't it I mean it's not really I mean we're just and certainly when we're look going to the Christmas past we're looking at Regency era yes so as you were saying about um, Oliver that this is a lot of the same sets I'm wondering if it's kind of like it doesn't quite look like the eighteen forty oh well, just pass me the script scribble scribble scribble. 1860 job done tell the guys working on pass we don't need all those stupid britches and all that kind of stuff it's going to be easier yeah but uh the film i can't tell if it was oh we've had this big success with oliver let's see what else dickens has we'll you know do christmas carol it's great for musical let's rush that out while the you know blood's pumping here and we've got the sets or was it you know, somebody already had that idea, it was in the making, and then because of the success of Oliver, they said, oh, well, maybe we should make that one. Because it did come up, let's see, what was Oliver? Oliver was 68? It's interesting that Oliver's a hit. Scrooge was a hit, wasn't it? But at the same time, like, you know, Doctor Doolittle and Star have created the Hollywood musical, both of which I've seen in 70, no? Oh, did you? Yeah. Of course, Star's worth watching in 70 mil because you get a massive Bruce Forsyth! <laughs> Who doesn't want that? Was it f filmed in 70 or was it blown up from 35? I think Star might have been filmed in 70. I'm less certain about Doctor Doolittle. Because there weren't actually that many films that were filmed in 70. Most of those were blown up from 35. I know that uh, things like uh, Around the World in 80 Days was Ben-Hur, Spartacus... 2001, you know, certain films were, were filmed with 7 million cameras, but a lot of them were just blown up from 35, as I recall. Just looking at the big production number at the end and just thinking, uh, yeah, that needs widescreen to exist. Just that great, the, the, the sincere thank you very much at the end. The choreographer must have sweat blood because everybody's in sync, but you need widescreen for that vista. Technology is pushing a certain genre into existence. You're absolutely right. Because uh, the Going back to where a lot of this started, not just with Victorian and Edwardian uh, times, but uh, the sword and sandal movies that were huge in the 60s, uh, any of this historical, you know, whatever, Cleopatra and some of these things, these big spectacles, epics, they were competing with television, weren't they? I mean, that's what it was all about. 
So in a sense, they were making these eras of the past, you know, larger than life to compete with television. So is this your go-to version of Scrooge? <laughs> well, that's that is a tough one, isn't it? Because because there's Scrooge the character or the actor, and Scrooge how they carried it off. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to not see Alistair Sim as Scrooge. He's just he's just the one, isn't he? That's why I always say I say go-to rather than favorite. Because my go-to version is the George C. Scott version because it doesn't get everything from the story, but what it does, it does very, very well. And best, Marley, no question. Frank Finley said it before, saying it again. Frank Finley's Marley is in hell. He is suffering. Catholic actor, that's why, because they know about purgatory. I'm not saying that George C. Scott is a better Scrooge than Alistair Sim, who physically embodies Dickens' Scrooge. I am curious about Basil Rathbone, though. I haven't seen that one. At the moment, I don't know if I'm going to have anybody back on the show. I don't know if I should, like, put a little sticker next to that. The Stingiest Man in Town was also remade as a animated version in 1978 with Walter Matthau. And, yeah, I've got 23 versions here. <laughs> On this list, so that people have a big choice. So I guess the answer is uh, Bill Murray. Um, I'm only doing versions where it's the lead character is Ebenezer Scrooge, which also means I'm missing out the Henry Winkler version, in which the character is Benedict Slade. Have you seen the Henry Winkler version? When was that? Uh, 1979. Oh, no kidding. And uh, he does it. He's one of the most interesting reformed ones because he's barely any different he's different underneath all right so thank you for coming on the show there are no more versions you want to mention that all right i'm down about this if there's anything else i want to say about uh, uh this version as well you have notes i charted a couple things good. Just... always always good for the guests to have notes and, uh, i did i only have a couple things of interest oh uh, michael medwin oh yes yeah that he co-wrote the script i did not know that and he was a producer as well. He produced, um, among other things, If and Our Lucky Man for Lindsay Anderson. Gosh, I love this one. But I think people my age most associate him with uh, the TV series Shoestring, where he was the radio station manager. And actually, I have somewhere, I have a Bruce Forsyth show from about 1966, in which he's the guest, and they're presenting him as if he was a well-known comedian. So there's an interesting career in Michael Medwin that made me need to open up. So do you have anything more to say about Scrooge before we stick a fork in this one because it's done? They toured for a long time a stage version of this Scrooge with Anthony Newley. Ah, yes, yeah. Uh, as in the lead. He definitely visited my town. And and your not-so-favorite Dr. Uh, John Pertwee was Marley in that one. I have my reasons. <laughs> Well, look, you know, Doctor Who, it's like Pink Floyd albums. There might be interesting stuff after the first two, but I just cannot be bothered. <laughs> but, I mean, John Pertwee as Marley is definitely... John Pertwee is screwed. John Pertwee is pretty much any part he cared to pick, except for maybe Tiny Tim or Mrs. Cratchit. He would really take the town and be worth seeing. Oh, and, and uh, uh, it's funny because you, if you look at the uh, songs, in the version, uh, and I found this interesting because it kind of changes the theme, when they went to do the stage version, they changed uh, the song I Hate People to I Hate Christmas. Right. Which is slightly different. Mm. I thought it was a very direct 
dispenses with a lot of the uh, background stuff. Do you say, I hate people? It's something you get in some of the weaker versions, is that he's punished because he doesn't like Christmas, not because he's ignoring the horrible world he lives in that he's part of. So, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was it was a pleasure. All you lot listening, all being well, I'll be around in a month's time with another version. I think I've got my person booked, and I think I know what version they're going to be watching, but you know how these things work. If I announce them, it never quite comes off. So, happy spring, and I'll see you next time. Bye! <laughs>